So we have been, most of you know, we have been going through the different characters in Hebrews chapter 11, you know, just good old Old Testament history, and um, how each of them in their own unique way um, trusted in the Lord. They followed the voice and the promise of the Lord, and, and they made a difference. Everyone from Abel to Enoch to Noah to Abraham to Moses and Sarah and uh, Jephthah and Gideon and you can go on and on and on and the countless nameless people that were at the end of the, the book. And um, here we come to the, the final character, the final uh, example of faith, the, the prime example of faith, and of course that's Jesus Christ. Um, but before I, I get to Jesus Christ, which is actually in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, you've got to keep in mind uh, chapter divisions and verses were never part of the original letter. You're supposed to read chapter 11 right into chapter 12, which I think climaxes with, with Jesus. Um, before I get there, I just want you to notice something. And I, I find this challenging. For me personally, I, I hope that you will find it to you as well. Is that he spent a whole chapter... Chapter 11, just telling us all these st- uh, stories of heroes, of heroes because they trusted God. That's, that's what they did. They trusted and they followed. Their, their faith worked. And, but he never once in chapter 11, talking about all these characters, never talks in the f- first or second person. He never talks about I, we, us, or he never uses the words you. And there, there's never personal address in chapter 11. Uh, not only so, but he never once uh, offers us a directive, an exhortation, a telling us to do something in the entire chapter. He just simply tells us stories of faith until we get to chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. For the first time in all of those verses, he switches to an us, to a we, and addresses to a you. And he gives an imperative or command. And the idea, and this is the challenge, challenging part, it's like, listen, These people who lived a 1,000 years ago and 2,000 years ago, they lived by faith. They walked their journey. Now it's our turn. Now he's making his final point. Like Everything has been building to make this final point. All of the little stories uh, put together are here to make this central point. In chapter 12, 1 and 2, this is what he says. This is the point. This is how we're to live. Therefore, like in light of everything I've said and all of the great examples that we've seen of people who have trusted and taken God at his word and acted. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. In English, it looks like he gives us uh, two or three directives or imperatives or commands, but there's actually only one in the original, and that is, let us run. That's the main point. They've run, they've finished their journey, their days came to an end, God took them home, now it's your turn to run. Let us run uh, with endurance the course that's marked out for us. That phrase by itself is rather compact, just tells us that we're supposed to be running, we're on a journey, and that, that journey is on a, on a course that's already been laid out for us by God. In other words, the Christian life is not about us choosing our own way or, or making our own way, but rather relinquishing rights to our own path and saying, I'm following you. And to do so with endurance, that is, you'd never give in, you never give up, you never throw in the towel, you never punch the cord. 
right? That's it. Run the race, run it with endurance, never quit the course that Jesus has marked out for us. That's, that's the central command. And everything else kind of clusters around, around that central um, exhortation to us. We've got to be running. It's our time. Their time has passed. It's our time to run this race of faith. And there are three, if you will, verbal ideas that help us understand what that race looks like or better, um, how best to run that race, um, which I want to get to in a moment. But I simply want to pause and acknowledge the fact that everybody who's alive, who's a human, um, is running after something. The question is not, are you running? The question is, what are you running after? And I think many Christians, many of us, all of us, should pause and reflect on what are we running after? Because it's, it's entirely possible for a Christian to say, I'm running after Jesus, when in fact they're running after something completely different. It's so easy to fool ourselves, live for one thing and confess a different thing. Um, and sometimes the way to get it, what am I really living for? You almost have to ask side questions of, uh, where, where do my dreams revolve around? Um, what are the things I'm most fearful of? And oftentimes those, those things will point to what's most important to us and therefore what we're running after. Christianity is about running after Christ, not stuff, not the world. Running after Christ, heart, soul, mind, and strength to be with him, to be like him, and to be a part of his great purpose of bringing his redemption, his love to the, to the world. That's, that's, that's the race that's set before us, and that's what the Christian um, uh, journey uh, is, 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 is all about. So with that point made, let me just kind of break down in three ways instructions to help us run, to help us to find strength and motivation. And you can take this or you can leave it. There's a part that we Christians play that I think God has granted us by grace, and that is to make choices of faith. And we can leave here this morning and make a choice to actually, can I follow this teaching? Or you can go home and you can just say, whatever. And I hope that everyone in here, including myself, is wrestling with what God says here. Not what Dan says, but what God says here. So three things, three verbal ideas, if you will. Um, One of them has to do with the family. That is the community. And by the way, you notice it says, let us run. It doesn't say, hey, you run over there, individual or personal or singular. It's like, let us run. Christianity is a team sport. It is, so to speak. Team sport. We're supposed to run together. It's like playing football by yourself. You can't do it, right? It's a team sport. Christianity is a team sport. We're supposed to run together which is why church is so important, why the collection, our collective is so important. Having said that, the first one has to do with that idea of, of, of family. And there, by the way, are the three verbal ideas. I'm going to fast forward past that. First one has to do with this. And this, I think, is intended to give us a sense of strength and motivation. And that is to remember your family heritage, to remember that you're... And by saying that, I don't mean remember that you're German or remember that you're Irish or remember that you're, you know, whatever your ethnicity is or where you come from in terms of geography. Um, but rather to remember your family history as it relates to faith. He says, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Now, a cloud of witnesses is just a big crowd of the people in chapter 11. Somehow, this is present tense, since we are, not were, or someday will be, but we are somehow surrounded by so great a cloud of people who have witnessed by their life and by their confession the faithfulness of God and run their course. Somehow we are surrounded by them. Now that at very least suggests that there is an intimate connection between them, who have already run the race, and us. And between us 
and them. Because I think by nature of our faith in the same God who offered the same sacrifice, we are the same family. Some have finished, and we are in process. We are intimately connected. And just the way that it's phrased, you notice it's, um, it's all one kind of long sentence. Since we have been, are surrounded. In other words, he's, he's giving us a motivational reason as to why we should run. And I, I believe that what he has in mind here, and this is fully biblical, is, is, is what you might think of as a group identity or a, or a collective identity or a, a, a communal identity. You know, we talk a lot about our identity in Christ, but almost always we think in, of it in an individual way, like just who, what is my personal identity is Dan Deckard um, in light of what Christ has done for me. And part of that's true. Like Paul said, I, personal, first person, I have been crucified with Christ. So we understood that there is this individual identity with Christ, but there is there's an inseparable union that we share as believers that we are also, um, we carry with us an identity as a group. This, this is who we are, not just as an individual, but who we are as a, as a group. Um, King David identified this way when he went out and faced Goliath. He says, you are defying um, uh, the God of Israel. The collective Israel who um, belongs to God. Um, that we identify ourselves as a bride. We identify ourselves with the body. We identify ourselves with, with the church. That's a collective identity. And it's supposed to strengthen us to recognize this is our family that we, that we learned about. In light of that, run. You might say, that doesn't make any sense to me, Dan. How does that work? It does work if you pause to think about it. It's part of how God has designed us. We gather strength from a communal identity, like identity is a group. Um, much of the conflict in our own country is a result of people who have a very powerful, strong identity with a particular group or region or ethnicity. Uh, this is kind of brought home to me uh, in a way by an Irishman that I once painted a house for. Now, I got to say, I, I don't, I'm like 116th Irish, so I hope I'm not going to offend any of my Irish extended family out there by saying this. But um, it, was, uh, it, was, it was humorous, so indulge me. But I painted this Irish guy's house. It was hotter than blazes outside. It was, it was Chicago. And it was in the middle of the summer where the humidity is like a 1,000%. And um, I'd come home every night with a headache, and I was just lay down. Well, anyway, this guy had compassion on me and invited me in for lunch. So I went into his air-conditioned, really nice home, and, um, and I noticed all the walls had all the... I didn't know he was Irish, because, you know, can't really tell an Irishman from a German, in my opinion. And, um, but I had all this Irish stuff all over the walls. You could tell this guy's Irish, like, through and through. Pictures of Guinness on the wall. And uh, there was, this, there was this, this plaque he had, and I stopped, and it made me laugh. And it said this. It said, the reason Irish are always fighting each other is because they have no other worthy opponents. <laughs> I was like, wow. It's like, we're, nobody out there is good enough for us, so we've got to fight each other. You know, that's what it is. Or, or another one of those quotes is like, God invented whiskey so the Irish wouldn't rule the world. <laughs> so no, it was funny. Not a really, come on, you can laugh at that a little bit, right? <laughs> But as all, all Irish, you can tell he's just, he was proud to be Irish, right? There's a strong sense of identity with his heritage. Um, there's a strong sense of identity um, amongst many, maybe all, African Americans. And that draws a sense of strength. 
I've met Texans. You probably have too. They're, if they're dyed in the wool Texans, they love to say they're from Texas. I have never yet met somebody, and maybe there's someone out here this morning who's from North, North Dakota who says, I just love being a North Dakota. There's no, there's just because there's no sense of identity with the state, but Texan, that's, that's different. And you know what it's like to be an American? I mean, there's a sense of pride. Think of strength. We're Americans, right? That's patriotism, the whole idea of, of the collective identity, what we stand for, our freedoms, what we don't stand for. All of that is, an, is, a, is intended to give us a sense of strength and belonging and a we. You, you, you choose the group identity. Rangers, seals, whatever. Listen, the point being, that's how it works. And whether we know it or not, and because we have such a low view of the church, most people, we don't recognize, you know what? The church is the one for whom Christ offered the entirety of his life. It's the bride that he loves with everything. And if he loves it that much, why wouldn't we love it? And to recognize that, listen, because of what Christ has done, because of the grace of God, because of the love of God, we are part of something older, bigger, stronger, the, 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 the holy habitation of the Most High, in and through whom God's power and might moves through history, changing the world. That's our family. And that's part of our identity. I think Paul would say this, and I'm comfortable saying this, that if you have the heart, if you have the faith of Abraham, if you have faith in Christ, then you are more Jewish than a Jewish who doesn't believe who has all the right genes. That's your heritage. The Old Testament people, that's your family, not just Jewish family. It's the family of faith. So we have to remember, who, who are we? living in this time. Who are we? Listen, we are the temple of the Almighty, who God has gifted to make a difference in this world as we live by faith. Don't diminish your family. Don't diminish the church. I'm not talking about just a local church, but God's people. To be a part of it is nothing less than astounding, and we ought to feel that way. And if we don't feel that way, that's not a problem with the truth. It's a problem with our hearts not really getting it. Point two, so he draws attention to the people, the family. Second, his instruction, in order for us to run as a collective, we have to travel light, this is my own words, and avoid sin distraction. That is the second part of verse 1, where it says, Let us, again, collective, lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Notice he, he has one instruction, which is lay aside. Then he kind of gives us two parts to it. One is every weight, and the other one is a sin which, so, uh, which clings so closely. Uh, the first part of that, the every weight, that could be, those weights could be good things. Good things on your calendar, good things in your budget, good hobbies. But it's really easy for good things to become weighty things and non-essential things. And at the end of the day, drag you down from a run to a crawl. And I think most of us would say that our lives are way over cluttered with non-essential things. It reminds me a little bit of my, my approach to backpacking. Forgive the 
personal illustration here, but you know, backpacking, running, they, they, they at least both have travel and you have to like, like calculate how much you take to make it, right? I am a horrible backpacker. And we went a couple weeks ago and Sean Arvin sat in first service and he could attest exactly what I'm about to say. And this is not a boast, this is an acknowledgement of foolishness on my part, all right? Is that when I go out into the wilderness, I do not want to eat freeze-dried burger. I don't want to carry a bunch of super light stuff that I have to stick hot water and wait for it to like get to normal size. <laughs> that tastes like cardboard with some kind of a, a, a you know salty taste. So we got ready to go, and good time for me to spend with Sean Arvin, you know, our missionary to China, and and also some of the high school students. And you know, I'm getting older, and I don't recover. I told you this a couple weeks ago, but I'll tell you what I took. Um, I took a, a frozen full tri-tip in frozen marinade. I took frozen chicken. I took a whole package of frozen brats, frozen bacon, all of it in ice. I took uh, like four or five full potatoes, none of this dried potato stuff. Um, I took real onions. I took a whole bottle of oil, the smallest one I could find, which is like 12 ounces. I took two cans of gas, um, white gas. I, I took, uh, I took uh, canned string beans, two cans of chili. All oh, this is man food, can you tell? Ladies, you're like, that's disgusting. And then there's my clothes. Then there's the tent that my son and I slept in, a two-man tent. And then there's my sleeping bag. All of it weighed probably 80, 90 pounds. I, I, could, what, I had to set it on the, the back end of my truck to actually get underneath it. And I knew as soon as I did that, there was no taking it off. For the five and a half miles, mile hike, up and down hills at 7,000 feet. And we are at, what, three? Um, like I said, I, that is the most stupid way to backpack. <laughs> right? There's no way you can make the Pacific Trust Trail or any, 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 any you know, journey with that. But you know why I did it? Because there's this hedonistic part of me. It's like, listen, I'm going to live in the woods. I'm going to eat good meat. Right? And I just have to say, you know, make, let's just make the leap and make this serious. Um, is it, I, I think that's probably, if we were to be honest, many of our approach to life. It's like, how can I live as good as I can right here, right now, while trying to make the journey? Right? And you just keep loading stuff up thinking, I'm going to be as happy as I can right here, right now. I'm going to keep loading the backpack so that I can have everything right here, right now. But at the same time, trying to march forward and run this race in Christ. And pretty soon, you're like, knees are going out and your shoulders are sunken down to the ground. Because we're so in love with things here, with the non-essential things. Now, God has granted us freedom to enjoy stuff. And I don't want to turn this into a lesson on asceticism. That you have to deny everything. But let's be able to, this is part of Christian maturity, is to be able to say, this is good. This is good, but it's not essential. And to have the wisdom to be able to spread, like, all of the, your tasks and activities, hobbies out on the table and say, all right, maybe you do this as a couple, maybe you do this as a single person. You just say, what, what do I need to say no to? Because when you say Yes to everything, you say no to some things that are really important. And, 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 and I, th I think the Holy Spirit wants, you to, wants us to declutter our lives so we have room to actually invite people into our home. To have room to have a conversation with somebody. To have room in our budgets to actually be generous with people rather than spending everything we have on ourselves. 
to have room in our lives to just go and be with your neighbor. That's the stuff that's getting squeezed out. And a lot of the stuff that's filling in the cracks, digital stuff too. And do not make the argument that the digital media is essential for life. It's not. You know it. But that's what fills in the cracks. And I'm just saying, if we're, especially a big piece of this is, is this thing that Jesus has called us to do, which is love. And you can't do love if you don't have time. And if you don't have time, then you're spending probably most of your life gathering together stuff. And then the second piece of that is also really important. Um, is there's, there's those sins that cling closely. And another way of translating that is, is, is uh, sins that easily distract us. It's like you're running along and squirrel, you know. It's, and, you know, the thing is, is that part of, again, Christian maturity is, is different things distract us differently. We in this room are not built the same, and we don't have the same exact temptations. Now, we may have the same category of temptations, but when it comes to the particulars of, of, of how you're weak, and what you give into and what you're distracted by, it's probably different because we're shaped differently. We're predisposed to sin differently. And to be self-aware enough to know, okay, this is my issue. Um, I care too much about perfection. I hate failure. I'm afraid of what people think about me. Um, or whatever it may be. you got to know what it is. I'm controlling um, I like to be in charge all the time. Um, what is that thing that you go to when you've had a really bad or depressing day? You know, that, that's kind of the balm of your soul. You know, is it food? Alcohol? Drugs? Spending money? Pornography? My guess is that it's probably, most of the time, one or two of the same things. That, that is your weakness. Listen, everybody in here has weaknesses. So let's not anybody pretend you don't. Okay? There's, it just might be different. And uh, to, uh, to be honest about that, but then he tells us we have, to let, we have to know that about ourselves and then learn to let it, lay it aside, to, to overcome them so that they no longer control us. And those are the ones we have to watch out for, the ones that you and your personality type and your history and your background and your baggage, the ones that you're most susceptible to. Those are the ones you almost have to wall up and shore up. And, and he intends for us to do this as a community, to help each other do this. Remember the let us? Let us lay aside? Asking friends, brothers, hey, this is my weakness. I need prayer. I need help. And I may call you in the middle of the night and say, I'm struggling. And that's what the collective is for. We're running this, it's like I said, team sport, right? It's a team sport. Um, we're supposed to be there for each other. And, uh, and that's a big part of the race. If, we, if, we're, if we're not in the process of overcoming sin, then we're not running the race. Now, if you're probably getting a little bit, then some of you might get a little nervous because it sounds like I'm moving in this like legalistic works direction. Well, let me take the the tension out of it. Well, there should be some tension, um, but let me take the tension out by getting to the last point. If we're supposed to draw strength from the fact that we are, a, we are the people of God, this is our heritage. Um, if we are supposed to be about assessing, discerning, and letting some things go, say no to these things, and learning how to set aside and, and prepare and deal with our weaknesses, the last part's the all-important, most important one of all, and without it, none of the first two make any sense. 
and actually are impossible to do. Because the third one, third one is to look to Jesus as the example, source, and object of our faith. That's the last part, right? It says looking, all of this, the running, even though it's third in the list, I think it's the absolute most important. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, and this is how he displayed his faith, is our ultimate example for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He, he holds Jesus as the hero of all heroes. You know, every other hero was cracked, and we pointed that out. And I could go through and do that, I don't have time. Like, all of them were, were sinful people. And we've made that point. The one, the one person, the one human in whom God's presence dwelt, the one human that never faltered, never once complained in the face of opposition or in the face of injustice, he never, never said, Father, how could you do that to me? And let's just face the fact that he had it far worse than any of us will ever have it. Like he faced the biggest challenge, the biggest task ever, which no one else had to do, not Noah, not Abraham, not Moses. He had to take upon himself the sin of the world to pay for it underneath the weight of God's wrath. No one else can compare with that. The task is infinite. The suffering, incalculable. And yet he did it without complaining, without sinning once. That's because he trusted his father. He completely trusted himself. He entrusted himself to the father who's willing to be ground into the ground for us. That's faith. And faith that on the other side of this horrible suffering, there would be joy. On the, on the, on the other side of, of the cross would be resurrection, and not just resurrection, but reunion with the Father. And I have to think part of that joy is reunion with his people, which is us. It's part of the joy set before him is I'm going to be with my people that I paid for. They're looking to just, so he's, he's our example, right? But he's more than an example. He says here that he is the, the founder or the author, the one who gives faith, the one who builds faith, the one who perfects faith which is the most important thing to trust. But here's the thing. It's not just, and this I've had to work through a little bit, it's not, not just that Jesus is the author and perfecter of faith in some magical or mystical way, like, oh, woo, he's like, now I have more faith because he's the author and perfecter of my faith. That God uses means. And the means by which God uses for us our faith to grow and perfect um, is the Holy Spirit taking the truth about Jesus and allowing us to gaze fully at everything that we have as a result of what he's done and who he is. And as he brings that home to our hearts, everything that he has done and is for us, Paul called it the unsearchable riches of Christ, You'll never come to the end of it. As we behold that by, by the power of the Spirit, our faith expands. Holy Spirit taking the truth. But I want you to understand that Christ is the center of that vision. That's the looking to Jesus, like looking to him. It doesn't mean with physical eyes. You're not going to see him with physical eyes this side of the new creation. But, or you die first. Um, 
but with the eyes of the heart to see him for who he is, what he's done, um, the benefits that we talked about earlier, earlier of the forgiveness and the redemption and the healing and the steadfast love and the mercy and the satisfying us with goodness. That's, that's what grows us. We almost instantaneously, as fallen humans, gravitate towards how do I make this happen? And the Lord's like, stop trying to make it happen, and you look to my son with the eyes of your heart. Now, you're saying, what are you talking about? How does that work? It seems so uh, contrary. Um, You know, this is a major theme, uh, and it seems counterintuitive, and it is. In the scripture, do you, you remember there's an Old Testament story, a fascinating story of uh, God's people were doing something bad. They were being naughty, and God sends these snakes, these serpents in. They start biting the people, and people stop, start dying. And so the Lord gives them this completely ludicrous command. It's like, uh, Moses, take and put a, put a bronze serpent on a, on a staff of wood. I want you to lift it up in the air and tell the people that if they're willing to look at this bronze serpent, they'll be saved. (laughs) Now just picture right now that happening. All of a sudden there's like these serpents slithering around underneath your chair. Right now, it's like Indiana Jones, you know, the first one. All these snakes everywhere. What would we be doing? All of our focus would not be on a post with a bronze statuesque at the top. We'd be like standing on top of chairs trying to figure out how do I get away from these snakes or if you got bit, how do I suck the venom out, right? We'd be worried about how to save us. And God's like, no, don't try to save yourself. You look to the serpent. You look to this bronze. And as they did, they were saved. They had no control over the salvation. All they had to do was look. And you know what? John picks up that same image in chapter 3 and talks about when the Son of Man, when he is lifted up, Same image. They will look to him and they will experience salvation as they look to him in faith. Counterintuitive. We want to save ourselves from our own sin, from our own whatever. And he's like, stop. You look to my son. Look to my son. Uh, Another similar metaphor that talks about the same thing. Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Your, your, Your primary objective in life is to stay connected to me. To know me, that's, that's the scripture passage, right? To know him and to know Christ and to fellowship with Christ and to gain Christ. That's the, in, the, in the vision of, of the Apostle Paul's heart was Christ. We're not supposed to take the eyes of our heart off of him as the centerpiece. Or the Apostle Paul would say it this way, that as we behold him, as we look to the Lord, as we come to know his saving benefits and his heart and his life, what happens? But we are transformed from one degree of glory to another. That's faith expanding. And that, that is a church that has always been, even though it seems counterintuitive. So you're telling me if I come to really know Christ and I continue to know him better by way of the Spirit through the truth, you're telling me my faith will expand and, and this author perfecter will, will just grow me? Yes. That's the beauty of it. That's, 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 that's first and foremost. So listen, as I said at the beginning, only, only you really being honest with the Lord know whether and what you're running after. Only the Lord and me know what Dan Decker's running after. And, you know, these are times in which, hey, this is our chance to run. Noah's done. Moses is done. 
Abraham's done. They're waiting to cross over with us. What are you doing? Where are your eyes? How are you dealing with sin? How are you dealing with all of the distractions around you? And are you really grabbing hold of who you're a part of? You, my friends, are part of the church of Christ. And I just encourage you, I encourage us, let us, with this collective identity because of what Christ has done, let us, what? Run. Let us, one more time, run. Oh, Lord, please just grant us the passion and faith and the fortitude and discipline to keep our eyes on Christ and to know that he will expand our hearts and give us the strength to overcome sin and make wise choices. I thank you for the people you've gathered here and just ask you, bless them. Bless them with your grace and with your strength and most of all, with a, a deep desire and hunger to know, savor, and love Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.